Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast includes discussions about monogamy, non-monogamy, sexism, and brief references to sexual assault. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, to paraphrase Regina George from Mean Girls, why are you so obsessed with monogamy? In Canada and the U.S., and many other places, most of us were raised with the idea that monogamy should be the foundation of a committed relationship. This is what's modeled for us in our families and almost all of the media that we consume. And even if your family did not have a monogamous pairing at the center, you were likely raised to believe that monogamy was the ideal. In fairy tales, we talk about the one true love, which then morphs into romantic comedies with the same message, that we have a one and only, a soulmate, our other half. But why are we so obsessed with monogamy? In research, there are debates about whether humans are meant to be monogamous or not, often focused on biology, which is often held up as the thing that counts. But culture, of course, also plays a major, often invisible role in determining how we structure our relationships. In this episode, I'll examine the theories of why behind monogamy and non-monogamy in humans and other species, and also examine how our gender biases influence our science. I also welcome Dr. Tasia Alexopoulos, who will take us on a tour of how monogamy is baked into our legal frameworks here in Canada, going back to the creation of Canada as a nation state. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, I recently appeared as a guest on Dr. Justin Lay Miller's Sex and Psychology podcast. In the episode, we talk about this podcast, get a little meta about research, and delve into some of my own research. It's episode 53 of the Sex and Psychology podcast, and it's called Everything You Know About Sex is Probably Wrong. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Let's begin with biology. In the last episode, What is Monogamy?, I explained that actual sexual monogamy is very rare in the wild, and that most species we talk about as monogamous are socially monogamous, but individuals may still have sex outside of their monogamous pairings. The pair bond aspect of social monogamy is still interesting for biological researchers, though, and the discussions about whether humans are monogamous or not often look to our closest primate relatives to observe their behavior. The problem with studying phenomena that are related to the human experience is that there's a lot of human cultural baggage and biases that get brought into the research, even though we frame the research as objective. Charles Darwin's book on the origin of the species is the foundation of much of the following biological research on sex and mating. Darwin was very much a product of his time in the 1800s. He was relatively sexually inexperienced and also saw women as innocent and passive. Through his lens of being raised in a patriarchal, sex-suppressed society, he observed gender differences in the animals he studied and created theories around these ideas. Darwin's original theories are the framework underlying much of the modern research on sex and monogamy. For example, 
Historically, much of the research on animal sexuality focuses on males as the pursuers and females as the passive recipients of male sexual overtures. Researcher Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy is a feminist evolutionary biologist who challenged many of Darwin's assumptions in her work. In particular, she challenged his idea of the, quote, coy female. We know now that in many species, females are anything but coy and are often the drivers of sexual activity. We also know that in primate species, such as our close relatives, the bonobos, sex happens for many reasons other than mating and producing offspring. Like humans, bonobos mate for social and pleasure reasons. Darwin's research focused on evolution and specifically on non-human species. E.O. Wilson was the researcher who brought Darwin's theories to humans and created the field we now call evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology seeks to understand human behavior through the lens of evolutionary theory. Applying evolutionary theory to human physical evolution is fairly clear because in most cases we can trace these observable components back through our evolutionary history by studying other species. But when we start to talk about behavioral aspects, it's much more complicated because we cannot observe the behavior or have insight to the thoughts of early humans. So what happens is we rely on a lot of assumptions. From the realm of evolutionary biology and psychology, a number of theories have been proposed about why monogamy might exist. First, I should note that a key underlying assumption in this area of research is that monogamy does not make sense for males because they have unlimited sperm and can impregnate an endless amount of females, and that monogamy does make sense for females because they can only be impregnated by one male at a time, and they want that male who impregnated them to stick around and provide them with resources. More on this later. So here are some theories that have been proposed for why monogamy exists. One is that females need protection from males. Two is that females need resources from or assistance with raising children from males. Three is that males want to ensure that they're providing resources for offspring that are actually their own, so they mate guard their female mates to ensure that. Four, female-on-female aggression prevents more than one female being in a given male's territory. This, of course, is talking about non-human species. Uh, With humans, it's kind of hard to have nobody else around your male partner. And five is to prevent infanticide. So the idea that males might murder infants or offspring that they don't think are their own, and so monogamy ensures that they won't kill the babies that a female has. It's important to note that these theories were created at a time when human women had limited access to financial freedom and relied to a much greater degree on men as resource providers. And so through that lens, researchers looked at these human examples and projected female need for resources, female need for coyness, onto these non-human animals that they were observing. These assumptions seem to go unchallenged by most researchers, but feminist scholars such as Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy and Patricia Goetty directly engage in research to address the biases and problems in these assumptions. For example, since we lived in social groupings, things like protection and resources could have very likely been provided by all members of the troop. Mothers could be supported in many ways and by many people in communal living situations. Just because people of European descent live in nuclear families now does not mean that that's how it was done in our ancestral past. 
and it isn't even how it works in many cultures around the world today. So many of the theories for why we might engage in monogamy do not have a lot of evidence to support them, and in many cases have more counter-evidence. It's also important to note that there are concepts that overlap with monogamy, but are not monogamy. So when thinking about humans or other animals, these things can be broken down into three categories. So there's pair bonding, the attachment to another person, pair living, so living in a nuclear family structure, and sexual monogamy. Often we clump all these things together and think they have to go together, but that's not necessarily the case. Using animal or insect behavior to understand human mating patterns is common, but this field is certainly not without problems. Although not directly about monogamy, one of the most famous studies about male sexual behavior is the Bateman study, published in 1948 looking at the mating patterns of fruit flies. Bateman found, essentially, that male fertility and fitness was based on how many female flies they could inseminate. Since 1948, this theory has really been this foundation of the idea that males are inherently more non-monogamous, or it makes more sense for males to be non-monogamous, and females are more monogamous. But this theory has been criticized, and the methodological flaws have been pointed out in multiple studies. Goethe actually published a replication of the study in which her and her colleagues did not find evidence to support the original study's conclusions at all. So it's possible that the core of these men are non-monogamous, women are monogamous studies is based on a bullshit study. Also, by relying on impregnation as the main metric for what drives our behavior, we limit our understanding of human sexual behavior. For example, People with clitorises have greater ability for multiple orgasms compared to people with penises. So if we use a pleasure perspective, it makes sense then that we would expect people with clitorises to have more partners, seek out more sex, and be more interested in non-monogamy because there are less limitations on their ability to experience pleasure. Overall, there does not seem to be clear evidence in our biological makeup to support sexual monogamy. Yes, humans do tend to pair bond, but those bonds can be experienced with more than one person as well. Most of the evidence for the why of monogamy, from my perspective, comes from the societal influences. In Canada and the U.S., most of our social and legal structures are built around the assumption of monogamous pairings. As I mentioned before, our media portrays almost exclusively monogamy and the one true love as the way of the world. We are fed monogamy from as soon as we can understand the world around us. Our legal systems, health benefits, etc. are also all built around the idea of a two-parent monogamous family structure. This heavy social pressure for monogamy has to have an influence on why we are so focused on monogamy. To add more context to this discussion from a legal perspective, I chatted with Dr. Tasia Alexopoulos, a women's and gender studies scholar who studies polygamy. Welcome. So you've done extensive research on polygamy, including writing an entire dissertation. And I know your focus is on the legal and historical approaches to polygamy, which also includes, of course, understanding how monogamy has been discussed in a legal framework. Can you talk a bit about the role monogamy played in early settler societies? One of the things that I thought was really interesting about polygamy when I was writing about it and researching it were the ways that monogamy 
played into decisions, uh, policy decisions in Canadian history and in settler history. Um, so there was often this narrative and continues to be a narrative that monogamy is better for society, better for women and children, um, and just more civilized, quote unquote, overall. So I was really interested in how monogamy as a law or a policy in Canada um, was related to uh, colonialism and imperialism and Canada's status as a settler society. One of the greatest roadblocks to successful colonization of what we now call Canada was, of course, the original inhabitants of the region. So we know that Canada is a white settler society, and that means that our society, Canadian society, um, is based on the dispossession of land and resources um, from the original inhabitants. Sometimes in like history classes or in different kind of uh, like textbooks, books about history, settlers and colonialism are depicted as kind of like a natural or innocent process. Um, and we know that in white settler societies and settler societies in general, there's nothing innocent about these processes. So it's stolen land and resources, it's genocide, it's dispossession. And I was interested in how monogamy fit into this these processes of, of settler societies. One way that Canadian settlers dispossessed Indigenous inhabitants of the regions that they were trying to settle is by invalidating their already established ways of forming families and practicing kinship. So the original inhabitants of, of any region obviously already have established um, their own culture, their own way of doing things. And something that's really important in settler societies is that you break these, these structures down. Um, and in Canada and in the Canadian West in particular, um, there were a variety of relationships practiced by Indigenous peoples, not excluding monogamy. Monogamy was certainly practiced, but including what we kind of understand as polygamy, polyamory, same-sex marriages, and divorce or relationship dissolution wasn't necessarily um, a formalized process for, for every culture. So changing this, altering this um, these cultural customs, um, the ways that these societies were set up, um, worked to destabilize Indigenous communities. So by changing the ways that communities lived their lives, um, settler authorities had more control over them. Over time in Canada, laws were established and adapted to force Indigenous people into um, a heterosexual um, monogamous nuclear family arrangement, which is part of what was deemed to be quote-unquote Canadian and what we now deem to be Canadian. So things like polygamy, um, polyamory, um, those are often constructed in the law or in just kind of like general discussion as being something that's not natural to Canada and it's not Canadian. Um, so these early processes of, of erasing a really diverse and rich modes of kinship in Indigenous communities are one way that those kind of like othering processes have been established over time. 
Something that I thought was very interesting um, was work that Sarah Carter did in 2008 in her book, The Importance of Being Monogamous. Sarah Carter is a historian at the University of Alberta, and she wrote that many Indigenous men with plural wives were influential leaders and had been treaty negotiators. So destabilizing familial structures was not only key to destabilizing Indigenous communities in general, but also key to destabilizing political and economic power and autonomy. Um, So monogamous marriage and the kind of enforcement of monogamous marriage helped to break down um, the power structures that existed in Indigenous communities So since before Canada was Canada, when Canada was just becoming what it is today, monogamy was a very important institution to enforce. And it continues to be today as well, because as we know, settler processes have not ended. We are still a settler society and colonialism is still ongoing. Yes, thank you. And so more recently, there was the reference case examining whether or not it was constitutional for polygamy to be illegal in Canada. Um, Before we explain what happened with that case, can you explain what a reference case or reference question is? In Canada, our constitution is regarded through what's called the living tree doctrine. Um, This means that constitutional interpretation can happen over time. Our constitution isn't static, it's organic, it's adaptable to changing times, it's dynamic. So as a tree grows and changes over time, so too can our constitution. A reference question is a question regarding the constitutionality of a law. So based on the living tree doctrine, something that was constitutional in 1929 may not be constitutional in 2021. So a question can be asked of the Supreme Court by federal, provincial, or territorial governments. So once a constitutional reference question hearing has ended, the court releases an opinion as a written judgment about whether or not and why something is either constitutional or not constitutional. The opinion given is not a judicial decision, so it's not legally binding, but these decisions hold great weight and are normally not ignored by the government. So what was the specific reference question in terms of polygamy? In Canada, both polygamy and bigamy are illegal. Bigamy is criminalized under Section 290 of the Criminal Code of Canada, and polygamy is criminalized under Section 293. So the original polygamy provision in Canada actually referenced Mormon plural marriage, but that was removed from the Criminal Code in 1954. So the reference question that you mentioned was at the heart of my dissertation and remains at the heart of my research. So the reference regarding Section 293 of the Criminal Code was a provincial reference question. So it was submitted to the British Columbia Supreme Court. This polygamy reference is interesting because it was prompted by multiple failed attempts to prosecute polygamists in B.C., specifically from the community in Bountiful. So in Bountiful, B.C., there is a community of people who openly practice polygamy. And the government of BC has been or had been at the time attempting to prosecute them for the crime of polygamy um, for quite a while. So that's what prompted this reference question. So two questions were referred to the court. Is Section 293 of the Criminal Code of Canada consistent with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? And what are the necessary elements of the offense in Section 293 of the Criminal Code of Canada? The question was posed in October 2009, and the decision was issued in November 2011. 
And what was the decision coming from this reference question? The decision is very interesting. So the the chief justice who oversaw the process, Chief Justice Bauman, concluded that the criminalization of polygamy is not constitutional, but it's justified because there is inherent harm in the practice of polygamy, which he defined as harm to women and also to the institution of monogamous marriage. So in kind of just basic terms, the, the chief justice decided, yes, criminalizing polygamy is a violation of certain constitutional and charter rights. However, these limitations are justified because polygamy is so, so harmful, not only to people, but to institutions, specifically the institution of monogamous marriage. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) So it's unconstitutional, but we have to keep it to save the monogamy and save the women's and children. Exactly. To save the women's (laughs) and the children and Something that I found very intriguing about the thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of legal documents that I had to read to fully understand this decision was the types of um, evidence that the that the chief justice really relied on. So there's a lot of different kinds of science um, that purport to prove that monogamy is better for society and in particular for women. And this kind of evidence was included in this reference case. So as I dug through this legal decision, I was really surprised by the evidence that the judge prioritized. And this was some pretty controversial science presented by Dr. Joseph Henrik, who is an evolutionary anthropologist. So the evidence that Dr. Joseph Henrik provided in a written affidavit and in verbal testimony claimed that if polygamy were to be decriminalized in Canada, there would be an increase in unmarried, low-status males since, quote-unquote, females have adapted over time evolutionarily and psychologically to choose mates based on a set of traits that low-status males do not possess. So this inability to consensually access women would compel low-status males to commit rape in order to increase their chances of reproducing. So basically, the evidence stated that unless there is one woman for every man to marry, men will go wild and start to kidnap and rape women to fulfill their evolutionary impulses to reproduce. I'm always amazed at how evolutionary psychologists and evolutionary, I guess in this case, anthropologists go to this default of men being monsters. (laughs) Absolutely. It completely limits the ways that men can exist in the world when this very stereotypical, narrow idea of very violent, aggressive masculinity is built directly into our law. Yeah, absolutely. I have to admit that I was really shocked by this. And in my notes, I have screech, (laughs) a really shocked emoji face. Um, Reading the entirety of the decision revealed that Henrik made a lot of predictions about the decriminalization of polygamy that Chief Justice Bauman took very seriously. So he also argued that the enforcement of monogamous marriage is a precursor for democracy and gender equality, um, not only today, but historically. Um, He writes, because it, quote unquote, imposed the same rules on the king and the peasant. Each can only have one wife, end quote. I cannot get over how much women or or anyone who's not heterosexual was completely erased from this verdict. So like all that matters is what men need and want and have to have based on their evolutionary imperative. 
Absolutely. It's so problematic in so many ways, not only because there's such a strong heteronormative bias. So basically written into our law now is that there's a male and a female and they are cogent and contained categories. Um, so in this evidence, there are only two genders and each correlates to a set of specific biological and social characteristics, including reproductive heterosexuality. So if we were to say that his theory is correct and that unmarried men, a really big pool of unmarried men increases crime, then what are we supposed to think about uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or asexual communities in Canada? Um, are they somehow responsible for creating dangerous pools of unmarried men? <laughs> um, so not only does this absence completely ignore the social construction of gender, um, but it disregards the lived realities of people who whose gender exists outside of the dichotomy and who, as a consequence, are more vulnerable to to violence, um, including sexual violence. So Henrik's theory is really troubling in its capacity for diminished culpability. Um, so he's basically casting the blame for an increase on crime on already marginalized people in communities, um, if his theory was correct, which it isn't. <laughs> yes. So there you have it, monogamy, baked into the law so that every man can have his own woman to prevent him from violently assaulting other women. So what did these cultural, legal, and moral restrictions around monogamy get us? Well, we live in a world that really demonizes non-monogamy of all kinds. This includes people who are engaging in infidelity and people who are engaging in consensual non-monogamy. We're all supposed to strive for monogamy, and breaking that rule leads to discrimination, and in the case of cheating, often outright hatred. The infidelity around morality is complex, and someday I'll do a whole episode on that. Uh, but for today, let's look at consensual non-monogamy. There have been multiple studies asking people about their attitudes towards people who engage in polyamory, so the type of relationship where people are engaged in multiple long-term loving, intimate, or sexual relationships, uh, swinging, where coupled partners go out and have sex with others, or open relationships, which is a more general umbrella term. Study after study has shown stigma and discrimination and overall negative attitudes towards people in consensually non-monogamous relationships when compared to monogamous people. My favorite set of studies specifically looked at what is called the halo effect that happens around monogamy. A halo effect is a phenomenon where if we think one thing about a person or group is positive, we extend that positivity to all aspects of them. For example, if someone is attractive, we might think they are also smart, nice, and caring, even if we don't know anything about them. So in a study asking people to read about monogamous and consensually non-monogamous people, the researchers had participants rank those people on relationship factors as well as characteristics unrelated to relationships. People rated monogamous people as having better relationships, more relationship satisfaction, and being more honest. But they also said the monogamous people were more reliable at dog walking and brushing their teeth than non-monogamous people, which of course has nothing to do with your relationship strategy. They found clear evidence of the halo effect for monogamy. Something I also find interesting that feeds into these biases is if we think about pair bonding, 
we have this idea that we can only pair bond romantically to one person. But the mechanisms behind pair bonding are similar for parent-child relationships and romantic or sexual partner relationships. We would never say that you could only bond with one child. So why do we think we can only pair bond with one partner? For some people, that might be the case, but many people are capable of love and connection with multiple sexual, romantic, and intimate partners. But our mononormative bias tells us this shouldn't happen. For me, the most compelling reasons for why we privilege and prefer monogamy is for cultural reasons. In many nations, entire political, financial, and patriarchal structures are built around the assumption of monogamy. And we discriminate against those who are not monogamous, both legally and socially. In recent years, the concept of consensual non-monogamy has increased in interest and practice, and this is leading to groups working to challenge laws and regulations around monogamy. As we have seen in Canada with the polygamy case, these are definitely uphill battles. Are we biologically wired to be monogamous? Probably not. Are we, as a species, more likely to be non-monogamous? I think the evidence points to yes. There are just so many examples of non-monogamy in supposedly monogamous societies that it doesn't make sense to assume humans are inherently monogamous. As I said in the last episode, though, I actually think the predilection toward monogamy or non-monogamy is an individual difference. Some of us are super monogamous, some of us are super not, and most of us are somewhere in between. On the next episode in this series on monogamy and non-monogamy, we will explore consensual non-monogamy in more depth, and we'll revisit one of our favorite segments from 2020, Awkward Questions from Confused Guys, but with a twist. In the next episode, it will be Awkward Questions from a Somewhat Confused Monogamist. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things. And of course, you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>